Good afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, shifting poles, colored bubbles, and wharf on the right. In addition, we'll be joined by Ms. Mary Roach, who will discuss the science of the afterlife. In addition, you can find out what the critical angle is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Pretty good. I'm in that bubbly mood again. Oh, the bubbly mood, the happy place. Yeah. Perfect surface tension, or are you about to pop? Actually, about to shrink. Really? And I'm talking about lactones. Does that have anything to do with lactating? No, in fact. So lactones are a general class of compounds, esters, in which it forms a cyclical structure. So both ends of the group loop around each other. And so that's... this is the carboxyl ester group. Right. Uh-huh. The nice thing is they found this dye molecule. It has an orange tint when the molecule's open, that when both ends are free. Mm-hmm. But somehow, when it's exposed to certain conditions of air, water, pressure, it closes the ring, and then the color disappears. Appears. And so, you know, one of the interesting goals of dyes is to uh, produce a bubble such that in its unexposed form, it's colored, but after being exposed to lighter pressure, it can disappear. And this is very useful, for example, if you want to test out new colors on a wall, but you don't want it to stain, <laughs> or you want, for example, a trace of where you mopped your floor, and then later it can disappear. So this is very interesting chemistry, and it was actually awarded the Popular Sciences Best of What's New in 2005. So I guess uh, it'd be good for invisible too, right? I guess so. There should be a lot of interesting uses for this. The inventor is Tim Kihoe from uh, St. Paul, and he's marking this as Zubbles. 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 Get some Zubbles in your life right away. Yeah. Oh, another cool application is to see if your kids have brushed their teeth. I'm sure that'll not go down too well with all the kids out there. <laughs> well, maybe if they make it minty enough. But, the bad uh, news for gingivitis. <laughs> but this should be available in the um, store shelves sometime in the spring. Cool. So I guess if they have a number of those different colored zubbles, it could create some kind of cool illusion of uh, effects. Wow. Imagine if we have like some combinatorial series of zubbles. <laughs> but a recent study might actually suggest that depending on which side of your face you actually look at these colored zubbles, for instance, uh-huh. might actually influence how well you can perceive the different colors. So is this something that's wired into your brain or is it based on differences in your eyes? Well, apparently it's based on differences in the processing capabilities of the two hemispheres of the brain. Okay. So there's been a theory for a long time that the left side of the brain is more involved in language and semantic processing and things like that. Right. So a group of researchers have been wondering if, in fact, that language ability of the left hemisphere actually helps in recognizing objects on the opposite side of the body. Because hmm. information coming to the left side arrives from the right side of the, the body. Right. So what they did is they presented a number of different colors to both sides of the brain, essentially, by putting them on different sides of the body. Uh-huh. They had a number of green squares and one blue square. All right. And it, by putting the blue square so that it reaches the left side, the talking side of the brain. You uh-huh. think. It actually improves the ability of the brain to recognize that color pop out. Wow. So I guess somehow your contrast detectors lie mostly on your left side, huh? What they're suggesting is that your ability to put a name to the color mm-hmm. improves your ability to recognize the difference that exists in the side. So the phonetic ability is sort of bootstrapping and pulling along your recognition. Wow. I can hear blue. <laughs> I can taste it. <laughs> 
So it's not necessarily a new idea. It was actually proposed in the 1930s by an American linguist named Benjamin Worf, and it was called the Worfian hypothesis, not related to Klingon, I guess. <laughs> this is actually a very fascinating study done at UC Berkeley by Professor Rich Ivory and published in our favorite journal. Oh, PNAS. The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. So we get that shifting feeling, like things are just not really settled around you. Yeah, because I'm standing on quicksand most of my life. <laughs> so you don't think it's uh, plate tectonics, which I think they should outlaw, but... Well, the Republicans are working on it. Yeah, but something more serious or more significant right now is uh, the shifting of the North Pole. Doesn't it shift generally? Uh, it does, but the rate at which it's shifting is actually accelerating. And typically it shifts somewhere between what we know as the North Pole and uh, Siberia. And in fact, in the last 150 years, it's shifted about... A thousand kilometers towards Siberia. So is this is this the pole of rotation or the magnetic pole or the magnetic, magnetic pole? Right, it's actually getting faster. And according to models uh, made by Joseph Stoner at Oregon State University, he thinks the North Pole could actually hit Siberia as soon as 50 years from now. So what what is he postulating is causing this shift? He doesn't have a clear theory, but this was work that he presented at the recent meeting of the American Geophysical Society at San Francisco. Okay, this would actually have profound effects other than screwing up your compasses. You would actually lose the uh, Aurora Borealis. There's supposed to be these geomagnetic shifts of the Earth's dipole every, I don't know, however many years. The flip, right? Yeah, the flip, yeah. But I guess it's something a bit more on the faster time scale. Oh, really? Huh. And at one point, I guess it was shifting like 50 kilometers a year, but now it's, it seems to be accelerating. Wow. Again, it's probably just one of those signs of the apocalypse, so what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and actually, at the same time, the magnetic field has actually decreased about 10% over uh-huh. the last 150 years. So uh-huh. there could be signs that will get more radiation from the uh, sun. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> I need to work on my tans. This was widely reported starting at the uh, Geophysical Union meeting in San Francisco, and it's in the popular press now. All right, what kind of bread do you enjoy? White. Isn't that the most healthy kind? Life is short. I'm going to enjoy it to the max. <laughs> and it comes so nicely sliced, too. Yeah, slathered of yeah. butter. You eat healthy, don't you? Of course. So researchers are actually looking at the wheat that goes into making most types of bread. It's a particular type of bread wheat called Tritingum espitevum. Wow, that's a mouthful. I can taste it. <laughs> but apparently this particular bread wheat uh, evolved some 9,000 years ago when it crossed with a couple of other uh, wheat species that were in existence. Uh-huh. Uh, the problem is this wheat apparently became so popular among farmers that it now covers more than 500 million acres worldwide, uh, leading to very low diversity of the wheat species. Okay, so it could be prone for some diseases since they may not have the diversity to resist it, it, right? Right, so basically a lot of people are concerned about this and the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center in Mexico has been doing some genetic modifications to see if they can actually improve the diversity of the wheat. So one day we can have super wheat (laughs) with extra nutrition, (laughs) super resistance. And hopefully it'll taste like uh, pork chops. (laughs) (laughs) So far, they've bred a number of different wheat lines. As they put them, they're pretty ugly things, uh, says the uh, lead researcher Richard Trethoen, a specialist there. But he says they're continuing to do so, and hopefully they can develop brand new lines that people will start using. So this is very fascinating work, and it's published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, Ms. Mary Roach will join us to discuss the science of the afterlife. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to the Grok Science Show. Well, there are a number of ways to describe it, the end to life's journey, or as Shakespeare put it, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. But this has not stopped many from puzzling over the various facets of death, and perhaps more intriguingly, the possibility of an afterlife. Scientists have typically abstained from this discussion, but a rare few are hoping that science may indeed provide some answers to those questions. Well, joining us today to discuss some of these issues is Ms. Mary Roach. Ms. Roach is a journalist and former Salon.com columnist who has written for numerous magazines, including Outside, Vogue, and the New York Times Magazine. She writes the humor column My Planet in Reader's Digest and is a contributing editor for Discover Magazine. She is the author of two books, Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers, and her most recent offering, Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife. Uh, Ms. Roach, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, well, it's really a pleasure, and you've certainly written a very fascinating book, Spook, here. Yeah. <laughs> I think a little off the beaten track, I think, for science, anyway. <laughs> yeah, the bookstores never know where to shelve it. Science, religion. A little bit of humor, too. It's actually quite Humor, fun. travel. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope that's one journey we can put off for a little while. But yeah. <laughs> it, it is fascinating, but it actually seems like it's a bit of a sequel to your previous book, which is Stiff, where you talk about cadavers. I'm wondering if you could maybe give us a little background into that, since this seems like a sequel. Sure, yeah, one did definitely inspire the other. Stiff is a book all about all the fun and interesting things dead people have gotten up to, mostly in the name of science, everything from the more well-known being a cadaver in an anatomy lab to the less-known world of, say, impact tolerance, which was when cadavers were used to calibrate crash test dummies back in the 60s. So it's all kinds of uh, interesting post-mortem careers that people have had over the years. And somewhere in my research for Stiff, I came across a man named Duncan McDougall, who was a physician around the turn of the last century, and he became obsessed with the idea of proving that the soul existed and had substance, and he was doing this by putting dying tuberculosis patients onto this elaborate bed scale that he had rigged up, and then at the moment that they died, he would watch the scale to see if the needle went down. So he was kind of the inspiration for Spook. I loved that idea of somebody trying to imply scientific experimental method to something as intangible as the human soul. You know, that from then I decided to see who else was trying to use science in this way. Did he come up with a weight for the human soul? He did indeed. It was between half and three-quarters of an ounce. Three-quarters of an ounce being the famous 21 grams of that uh, film with Sean Penn that was out a couple of years ago. And uh, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the heck could have been going on <laughs> with, with Dr. McDougall's scale, or, or if there was any you know, scientific reason why a body would lose three-quarters of an ounce. And uh, there isn't really a reason why you would lose that much weight suddenly. You know, mm. you do lose little incremental bits via your exhaled breath, moisture, and your perspiration, but not three-quarters of an ounce. Okay. So uh, either he proved that there's a soul or his scale was hinky. I, I think those are what were the conclusions that we're left with. Well, I think we also lose control of our bodily functions at death, so that might... Well, yeah, but that would, yes, that would stay on the scale, though. So. Uh, well, depends how Doctor, upright the scale is, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you did write a very fascinating book tracking down all different types of matters of people uh, looking into the afterlife. You sort of go all over from India all the way to University of Virginia. Maybe we could talk about some of these stories. You already sure. mentioned Duncan McDougall, but how about the medium school you went to? Well, I, I first spent some time at the University of Arizona, where, uh, believe it or not, there actually is a tenured professor who gets funding to look into uh, mediums and, and whether or not what they do is significant, you know, whether or not they can actually get information from a source 
that would be significantly more accurate than just chance. So he does a lot of this work. I went there specifically because they were doing this study that appealed to the, well, I guess the lighter side of my research. It was called the, the Asking Questions Study, and they had recruited four very, supposedly very good mediums, and they were having them pose questions to a couple of dead people, the questions that you never seem to get an answer to when you're you know, reading about what people are saying from the beyond. These were questions such as, do you eat? Is there sex? What do you do all day? What does it look like? So that was that kind of appealed to me that they were actually investigating that. Is there sex? Alas, the consensus was no. Uh, I was very disappointed to hear that. There is eating. There's food, according to a couple of these people. So I guess that's your the booby prize. Okay. Well, second best, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, then I uh, the medium school was sort of a spinoff of that because I heard about that and thought, well, maybe I just don't understand this whole world of spirit communication. Because yeah, I had an encounter with this one medium there, Alison Dubois, who is the medium from that television show. She was the inspiration mm-hmm. for the show Medium. And she, most of what she said about my mother was vague or not accurate. But one thing or two things were, were very, uh, very specific. And I, and I thought, okay, that's very specific. Well, it was, in fact, she mentioned, she said, I'm getting an hourglass that you turn over. Does your brother have one? And my brother happens to have a collection of hourglasses. So I thought, well, that's fairly specific. But then I immediately went into this train of thought along the lines of, but why? Why would that be the one thing my mother would choose to say to me from the beyond? My brother's hourglass collection. It just seemed so trivial and surreal Mm -hmm. that I thought, well, maybe perhaps I just don't understand the the world of spirit communication. So off I went to a three-day course in mediumship uh, over in England. I was a tremendous failure at it. I'm sorry to report. (laughs) But I guess you do talk about Cambridge University housing the last collection of ectoplasm obtained from some of these mediums. Yes, I tracked (laughs) down, while I was over in England, I tracked down what, as far as I could find, the last remaining sample of ectoplasm. And ectoplasm was a bizarre, this is an artifact from the heyday of spiritualism. Uh, In the 1920s, there was a tremendous upsurge in activity after World War I. Everyone was going to seances and mediums were, you know, talking to people in the beyond, etc., etc. And one, and and I got interested in it because ectoplasm was thought to be you know a demonstration of here here's a tangible thing these mediums would exude this stuff and it turned out to be either usually cheesecloth or sheep entrails in one case but it was dark and you know it was sort of mysterious and they would produce this stuff and it was supposed to be a tangible relic of the afterlife it was supposed to be spirit energy made physical and the amazing thing is that during this time frame if you look in the New York Times index you will find the Sorbonne University doing experiments on ectoplasm Scientific American did a five part series on mm. this medium who was supposedly uh, they couldn't figure out how she was doing it. There was, they tried to see, you know, is she doing it fraudulently? They would search her before she came into the seance room. They couldn't figure it out. Anyway, it was treated quite seriously hmm. in the scientific community, which seems amazing to us now. But hmm. I think back then it was not that long after the advent of electricity, of wireless telegraph, of the telephone, and all these sort of seeming witcheries that people had been asked to accept. Uh, so I guess mediums acting as <laughs> receivers from the beyond wasn't, wasn't really a huge leap for people back then. Right. So uh, it was a fascinating era. But anyway, yes, the, I found this one box of <laughs> ectoplasm. 
in Cambridge, the archives. What scientist wouldn't be fascinated by goo? No, no, yeah, it, it has certain inherent appeal, <laughs> goo. Um, I'm curious, I mean, it, it's sort of an interesting tale going around and visiting all these places. What do you think was the more interesting or fascinating place you visited? Well, the most intriguing in the sense of it, it wasn't just an entertaining read, but it was actually research that left me scratching my head a little bit, was work that was being done at the University of Virginia on near-death experience. Near-death experience, part of what a near-death experience often includes is this sense of leaving your body and looking down upon yourself on an operating table or being resuscitated. And what these folks are doing, it's a psychiatrist working with a team of cardiologists, and they have a setup there in the operating room whereby this laptop computer is up on the top, taped to the top of the highest cardiac monitor so that you couldn't see what's on the screen unless you were up by the ceiling. And the idea is the people in this operating room, part of their operation, they're having a defibrillator put in. In order to test that defibrillator, they stop the heart briefly to Mm. then see if the defibrillator can jumpstart their heart. Mm. So they are being rendered clinically dead for a few seconds. So that's a good population to (laughs) look at for near-death experience. Anyway, after the operation, the psychiatrist interviews them and says, do you remember anything at all about your time in the operating room? And the hope is that at some point, one of the patients will say, yeah, you know, the weirdest thing, I left my body at one point and there was a computer up there and on the screen there was this image of, you know, a horse or whatever it is. There were, I don't know, about 10 randomly generated Mm. images that were on the screen of this laptop. At the time the book went to press, nobody had had a near-death experience whom they had spoken to, Mm. but I'd want to follow that study to see if anybody actually does. Because the debate with near-death experience is, of course, are they actually going somewhere or is it just a brain-based organic hallucination? Right. And that is the simple question that they're addressing at that University of Virginia study. Uh, well, you know, we spend too much time looking at computer monitors in the present life, perhaps in the afterlife, and wouldn't want to look at one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then again, you know, it seems, from what I've heard about the afterlife, it seems like there's not a lot to do, so it'd be great to have a chance to, you know, check your email, right. surf the go internet. on the web. <laughs> But these are, of course, you know, the, the newly dead, though, so perhaps they'd have other things on their <laughs> right. minds than checking email. <laughs> Another one that sort of caught my interest was uh, the fact that you actually submitted yourself to some sort of electromagnetic stimulation in order to induce <laughs> seeing ghosts. <laughs> yeah, silly me. Uh, I, um, the things I'll do for my books. This was a chapter in which I was looking at electromagnetic fields and what they do to your brain or how they, what they might be doing to your brain. And the reason this fits in with the book is that amateur ghost hunters, when they go to supposedly haunted houses, often bring an EMF meter. And mm. the lore is, oh, if there's a jump in the EMF level, then it means there's a spirit. And this researcher at the Laurentian University up in Sudbury, Ontario, is essentially taking the ghost out of the equation and saying, well, let's look at EMFs and see if do they trigger any kind of hallucination or a feeling of a presence? Do they do something perhaps to the brain that's causing people to have this sense of being haunted or, or of someone being in the room? So he has, it's essentially a skidoo helmet hmm. with a bunch of solenoids and wires, and he puts this on your head and runs a complex electromagnetic field through your right temporal lobe and you tell him what comes to mind or what you experience while you're in this soundproof room. And I volunteered for this without giving it a lot of thought. <laughs> I was up there going, you know, taking a cab over to the university and the cab driver said, well, hey, what are you doing here in town? And I said, oh, I'm going to see Dr. Persinger. He goes, oh, yeah, I, I went to that uh, Laurentian University. Dr. Persinger, he's a weird man, eh? <laughs> I said, 
what do you mean? He said, oh, they say he wears a three-piece suit to mow his lawn, eh? You know, and then he had this list of facets of Dr. Persinger's personality that made me wonder whether it was a very smart idea to be allowing this man to... Uh, to shock uh, your brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he turned out to be quite sane. I'm curious. I mean, so you visited all these people. I'm curious, what's your conclusion about what does science have to say about the afterlife, if anything, really? Well, the book is, somebody described it as This American Afterlife. (laughs) uh, It's really an exploration of that very human quest Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. find an answer. And it's almost more about the creativity and the ways in which people go at it and the the personalities of these people. I didn't really expect to come up with the answer, Mm -hmm. although I did end up being more intrigued than I expected by some of the near-death experience work and also just talking to some folks in the realm of quantum mechanics. I think if we do have an answer at some point, that's where it will come from. Whether or not anyone like myself will understand that answer (laughs) is another matter. But the world of quantum mechanics is is so out there that the idea of, you know, another dimension or, or of consciousness existing, you know, not inside your head, but as a field remote from your, your own cranium is, is something that's not you know, all that bizarre. So I think, think that that's where we, we may eventually find an answer. You know, in a way, I didn't really want to claim to have an answer because I, yeah, I just think people need a little mystery, particularly this mystery. I think it's okay that we don't have an answer. Right. Sometimes the journey is a little more important than the answer. Yeah. Yeah. So we are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious, so is there anything else in the works? Oh, yes. I am actually, I'm working on another book. I can't give away the subject, but it is a similar all-over-the-map goofball attention deficit look at some kind of odd science. Ah, okay. So that's uh, in the works. Won't be out for a year and a half, but no dead people this time. Ah. <laughs> I'm getting a strange reputation. <laughs> Probably hunting around all the morgues, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about your book, uh, Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife. Oh, it was my pleasure. And you were just listening to Ms. Mary Roach discussing the science of the afterlife. You are listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. and we're ready to play the Grokatron 5000. That's right, it's our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Heaven or Hell? (laughs) So for the following five people, if there were an afterlife, would they wind up in heaven or hell? Are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Yes, I am. Okay, here we go. Heaven or hell? Person number one, Bill Gates. Let's put him in purgatory. (laughs) Let's just let's just leave him there. You know, hell may be a little strong. I mean, hell, I'm thinking, 
you know, George Bush, Paris Hilton. I mean, they're really extreme offenders. Um, and I just can't can't imagine heaven either. So that, and that's why I'm that's why I'm putting them in purgatory. Okay, very good. <laughs> Number two, Britney Spears. I'm sorry, hell. I mean, it, it, it's on. It's probably a little over the top, but I, I have to say hell because life was way too good and generous to her for no <laughs> apparent reason. So I think you know, karmically, we have to for the afterlife. She's she's got to pay pay some dues. <laughs> All right. Well, I've <laughs> <laughs> number three, Scientology creator L. Ron Hubbard. Oh, L. Ron. Yeah. Hell. Yeah. Hell. Definitely. Hell. I don't know what Scientology's take on heaven and hell is, but. You definitely help. I think it's self-explanatory. Okay. <laughs> Number four, Martha Stewart. Martha, I'm going to I'm going to be lenient with Martha just because she's she's done time, and I don't think she really deserved to do time. So let's not make her do time in hell. Let's give her a break this time around. I'm sure she'll be glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And number five, finally, of course, President of the United States George Bush. Yeah. Is there anything beyond hell that you've got? <laughs> I think there are various levels of hell, aren't there? Okay, well, the, 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 the highest level, if the highest means, you know, most extreme heat, <laughs> torture, and pain, that, that's what we want for him. Yeah. He won't be in with Brittany. Brittany will be in the, the milder category. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, Ms. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to thank you very much for sticking around to play our game, the uh, Grokatron 5000, and, of course, discussing your book, Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, well, it's certainly our pleasure having you on the program. Thank you very much. Okay, take care. Take care. All right, test, 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 one, two, one, two, hut, hut, hut. It's the Sergeant Major Colonel with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is the critical angle, fool? Well, you better know what it is. If you're going to build that pile of sand, it's the critical angle that it's going to take before the sand pile collapses. Now drop and give me 20. <laughs> monkey Boy likes bananas. Monkey Boy gets tired when banana makes Monkey Boy strong. But why does banana cause Monkey Boy to get his energy back? Monkey Boy wants to know. <laughs> if you want to know or think you know, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might enjoy that next banana. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.